With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What up, what up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Let's Ask Paul, the podcast where I, Paul Abernathy, attempt to answer all of your electrical pressing code-related questions. Of course, it's a simple thing to do. All you got to do is go to paulabernathy.com and uh, simple, put your name, information in there, ask your question, click the button. You can also listen to the podcast from there as well, if you didn't know that, straight from paulabernathy.com. But most people listen to... Uh, the podcast on their favorite listening platforms, Spreaker, Spotify, Deezer, uh, what is it, Uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, what is the other ones, I guess, Uh, Spotify, just so many. Um, And to do that, all you've got to do is go to your favorite listening platform. I like to use Spotify personally. Um, And you simply go and and, um, search for Master The NEC Podcast. That's it. And you'll find the podcast to make sure you bookmark it, save it, give us a thumbs up, share it with everybody. But another way you can actually do it is if you go get our free mobile app and our mobile app is available over at www.neccchat.com. That's NEC chat. Of course, you can also go to our website and download it as well. And it's available on all of our websites, but um, most people are going to go to fast tracks system Dot com. That's F-A-S-T-T-R-A-X-S-Y-S-T-E-M.com. And you can download it from there. You'll see the link at the top right. It'll say mobile. If you're on a mobile, uh, then you'll see the little hamburger symbol or whatever the heck you call it. And you click on that and you'll see where there's the mobile app. And you can go right there and get it as well. So that's how a lot of people. Now, the neat thing about the app, folks, if you haven't downloaded our app yet, uh, the new app is that we also have a lot of resources on there. There's ability to chat directly with us on there. It gives you access to Fast Tracks Tube, Fast Tracks Chat, uh, the Sparky Hub. There's just so many ways for you electricians and people learning the code or learning the trade. It, it, a great way for you all to interact together. It's not just about reaching out to us. It's the ability to be able to interact uh, amongst your other trade folk and uh, so that's the beautiful thing, and we're trying to create this kind of this this ecosystem of uh, the the Sparky Hub, the Fast Tracks Chat, and and so many things. And if you have our app, there's actually a feature on there as well that is exclusive for those that have the mobile app. You can communicate with everybody that has the mobile app directly just on the mobile app. So that's pretty cool. If you're like, look, I want to keep it private to the app, and I only want to do it with other folks that that have like interests that use the app, then that's a neat feature. So check it out. All right. 
Enough of that because I get people say, Paul, you're too much of a salesman. I'm like, dude, I'm in business. Got to make money. Okay, but all that stuff I just talked about was actually free. All right. So we've got a, a, a good code question tonight, and it's actually five code questions, uh, to be honest with you. Um, they were submitted on the Ask Paul portal, and they actually did a good job in the submittal process uh, because they identified five questions they wanted answers. And you know what? That's how your folks can do it. If you, you want to put them, question one, question two, question three, however you want to do it. So to the individual that submitted this, uh, kudos, good job. Um, and uh, it looks like you started out wanting it into 2023 code, but then some of your code references later on kind of shifted back to the 2020, and that's okay. Um, we'll just kind of answer the questions for you. So... Let me go on and get started with this one because uh, I don't want to take too awful long for you folks tonight on this podcast, but we do want to answer these questions for this gentleman. Okay, so the question is, hi, I enjoy, I enjoy learning from your podcast. Thanks. I'd like to hear your commentary on several things if you would. Okay, so there's a bunch of, bunch of things here he wants to get my opinion on, okay? All right, not, not that my opinion matters, folks. I get it, right? I, I hear that enough. But this gentleman would like my opinion, so I'm going to give him my opinion. All right, number one. When, if ever, do you use the nameplate data of a motor to size supply conductors to the motor? I realize it is spelled out in NEC 230, I guess, article 430.6. But this discussion would be helpful. Okay, good question. Uh, this one uh, should be fairly easy to tackle. So if you've got your code books, folks, what you're going to do is you're going to be going to Article 430, right? And what we're going to do is we're going to go to 430.22. That's where we're going to start our journey, okay? All right, so when you get here, 430.22, you're going to look at the charging statement. That's before you get to A, the subdivisions, A, B, C. You're going to look at the top. And it says conductors that supply a single motor used in a continuous duty application shall have an capacity of not less than 125% of the motor's full load current rating as determined in 430.6A1 or not less than specified in 430.22A through G. Okay. All right. So you've got all these different things down here. And... What I want to draw your attention to is you notice how it says, uh, uh, or not less than specified in 430.22A through G. So for the most part, normally when you're sizing conductors, uh, and, it, and it wouldn't be any different in this case, this is for the single motor here, you would use the FLC, which is obviously back in 430, 248, 249, 250, that type of thing, okay? Um, that's what you typically would use, and that's what we are going to tell you to use. Now, in certain occasions, uh, in the most prominent one uh, for that is when you look down, and you'll actually drop on down, right? As you continue on down, come on down to E. Now, E is other than continuous duty, right? So this is talking about various motors like short-time duty, intermittent duty, periodic duty, and varying duty, okay? Duty, did he say duty? <laughs> yeah, he did. All right, so that's my, that's my reference to Caddyshack. That's it, I only get one. 
All right. So when you come down and look at E, you're going to notice that the about the third line down, it says nameplate current rating. All right. So notice it says conductors for motors used in a short time, intermittent, periodic or varying duty application shall have an opacity of not less than the percentage. OK, in this table for 30.22 E is based on a percentage now. It says not less than a percentage of the motor's nameplate current rating shown in table 430.22E. Okay. And then, of course, it says unless the authority having jurisdiction grants special permission for conductors of lower ampacity. Most AHJs aren't going to get involved in that. Well, why take on the liability to even uh, try to alter or change or even make a statement about anything other than that? Okay. So that's, that's your first thing uh, that you want to focus on. All right, so keeping it, we want to keep it very simple. You're going to use the FLC for sizing these conductors in every other application uh, because it, it creates some consistency. But when it comes to dealing with those type of motors that are not continuous duty motors, and, you know, your everyday motor that you're going to deal with, uh, most motors are continuous duty. But you do have motors that are not continuous duty. And if that's the case, then they're going to be of this type that we just looked at, whether it's uh, you know intermittent duty, periodic duty, short time duty, varying duty, or whatnot. And again, I will remind you that all of these are defined in Article 100. So make sure you take the time to go look at Article 100 and look at the, what differentiates each one of these. Okay? Another thing is people tend to think that the uh, continuous duty is the same as continuous load. Yeah, for a single motor, if it's continuous duty, we do take that single motor, uh, typically at 125%, right? Um, but it's not because that motor is going to be at its full maximum output for three hours or more, just like the same as we would have for a continuous load. Um, we're taking it because it is a continuous duty motor, and the National Electrical Code is telling us uh, in 430.22 uh, what we need to do with it, and that is to take it at 125%, right? But remember... That's for sizing the conductors, okay? That's for sizing the conductors to that motor load. Now, if you had multiple motors, then you would be going to 430.24. And 430.24 is very similar. It just tells you to take the highest rated motor at 125%. And then, of course, the sum of the full load currents of all the other motors in the group. Now, think of group as if you have a motor that's using A, B, and C, it's three-phase motor, and I have another motor, if it's using any one of those legs, then it's in the same group. You with me? So if that's the case, 125% of the highest rated motor, and then the sum, okay, that would be the full value from the FLC in the back of 430 you would use for all the other motors, right? But that is conductor sizing, right? Now... When you're doing this and you have multiple motors, notice you do have an exception. And the only reason I bring this up because you'll see that the exception brings in 430.22E. And that means you could have a motor, one of the motors being an intermittent duty or something other than continuous duty. And it's being used with a motor to say that is continuous duty. And that's the case where you're going to follow exception number one. Okay. And it gives you. Uh, explicit instructions on how to do this uh, in exception number one, 
Okay, so that generally answers that question. I don't want to get into a long lesson. I do have a motors video out there, folks, that's in our monthly subscription or our annual program, which I should remind folks, uh, the, the monthly subscription program, for those that, that, that do our monthly subscription for their videos, I will let you know that that's ending at the end of this month. Um, and everything after that's going to be annual only. And then that's when we're transitioning over to Fast Tracks Tube. And that's where the videos are going to be. So um, all this is going to happen close at the same time. So don't worry if you're a subscriber monthly. You don't have to do anything. At the end of the month, we will initiate it. And your subscription will continue until it's time to renew. And then it'll just end. Okay. And if you want to join the annual, we, we welcome you over to the annual. Okay. I just want to make sure I cover that because there sometimes people do ask those questions. Okay. Uh, the next question that you submitted was, all right, number two. Is it okay to have a meter main uh, to a residence with a 150 amp breaker at the meter with the feeder properly sized for that 150 ampere breaker to the indoor main breaker panel that has a 200 amp main breaker built into the uh, built into the indoor panel. I realize the 150 should trip to protect everything and the 200 would just be essentially a switch. Okay, well, you pretty much essentially answered your own question, okay? So, <clears throat> so what you've got is the service disconnect outside at the meter. And we're going to assume all this and that this is an installation that was done uh, in accordance with 230.85. And it's a one and two family dwelling and we have an outside service disconnecting because he said it's a feeder that tells me that is the case. So it's 150 amp service. Now, you're perfectly okay if it's a 150 amp outside and your conductors are rated 150 and all they are is feeding a panel that's inside that has, you know, it could be a main lug only. But just because it has a main breaker, that is nothing more than a disconnect at this point. Now, the overcurrent protection that it provides is really moot when the fact that it's uh, upstream, it's everything is, is rated 150. So that 150 is going to protect those conductors downstream and it's gonna protect from any overload condition. So that 200 amp breaker that's in that panel that's now the remote distribution panel, uh, that's just there. Um, in some cases, the main lug onlys may even cost more than a panel with the main breaker. Uh, and it might be a supply and demand type of thing, but that is perfectly okay. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that because you know what? The rule in 408.36 is kind of what we're talking about here. And it basically, the panel boards require protection, okay? They require overcurrent protection. But it, it reminds us that it has to be protected by that overcurrent protected device, and the rating is not greater than that of the panel board. So that 150 that's upstream, the service disconnecting means, is not greater than the downstream remote distribution panel. Now, obviously that's 200 amp panel uh, minimum. Uh, the cabinet's probably, the gut's probably 225, but the main breaker's 200. I don't know, I'm just assuming. But because you say it's 200, 
You're not exceeding that. The 150 is not exceeding that. And it's perfectly fine. You could have gotten away with the main lug only. And that would have been acceptable to do that. Okay. All right. So very common. Uh, and, and again, no problem with that. So uh, hopefully that answers that question. It is essentially is a switch at this point. It is uh, not necessary. Uh, let's see. The next question on his list. I told you he loaded me up here. Uh, number three, it says, I was looking at a product instructions for GM LED tape light, and it says it is closet rated. Near the bottom of the list, uh, I guess it's the bottom of the product list, he did send me a link to the product, and I did look at it. On all fairness, before I did the podcast, I looked at it. It says, is this saying I'm allowed to install this inside the storage space of the closet uh, per NEC 2 uh, in 2023, 410.16D exception. It says, I have a homeowner wanting to do this, and it is ingrained in me not to have luminaires in the storage area. Okay. Well, the first thing you, you kind of got to understand with this one is we need to go look at 410. And in this case, we're obviously dealing with closed closets, so we're looking at 410.16. And under 410.16, what you'll have is they're not exceptions, by the way. Um, it says B, uh, 410.16 B3. Uh, I mean, I, I believe that's the, he gave a D, and D is location. So um, we can we can look at we'll look at that exception as well because that's the clearances and everything like that. But we want to focus on on B first, and that's the luminary types that are permitted. And it says only luminaires of the following type shall be permitted in a closed closet. So this has to do with being in the closed closet itself. It says number three says surface mounted fluorescent or LED luminaires identified as suitable for installation within the closed closet storage space. So you can get products. And I've seen it. These are actually the closed rods, the hanger rod itself that illuminates, that is designed to be within the space itself. So if this manufacturer... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Is citing this. And the other deal is these are, these are lower voltage, 24 volts. Uh, and the, the amount of heat they put off is hardly nothing. It is not enough there to trigger anything that would be uh, of an issue. So they had their product evaluated for that. And so if they're making that statement, and of course here, it states that there are different luminaires uh, of the LED luminaire identified as suitable for inside of that closed closet storage space. So it's pretty cut and dry. It can be in that space. Now, it goes on when you look at location, which is D, right? And D will tell you, uh, and again, the exception here uh, was basically added in the 2023. 
And for the locations, you got all these different 12 inches, 6 inches, 6 inches, 6 inches. And you got an exception. And the exception says surface mounted fluorescent or LED luminaires shall be permitted to be installed within the closet storage, uh, the closed closet storage space were identified for this use. Well, it's, it's, it's obvious that you know that you're not required by code to have a luminaire in a closet anyway. That's something that a lot of people don't realize. You're, nothing in the code requires it in there. If you put a lumen in there, luminaire in there, then you've got these clearances you have to be aware of in 410.16, right? But nobody requires it, all right? Now, the change here is simply harmonizing with what's allowed up in B3 it, when it comes to the locations, then it's making a statement that exception here is saying, well, you know what, if you have LED luminaires and they've been evaluated and a manufacturer's willing to, uh, to say that that's what they're identified for, that's what their use is for, then go for it. So I would say most certainly you could install, at least the ones you sent me, most certainly can install them within the storage footprint. Okay, so hopefully that answers that question for you. And you also got to remember, uh, they wouldn't write it that way and say within the closed closet storage space because, you know, we have that illustration, that, that infamous uh, figure 410.16a that literally shows the storage space, right? And it, it's titled as that. It says closed closet storage space. So these rules, these allowances that you're citing are specifically allowing you to put those specific types of luminaires in that storage space. And of course, in your case, the manufacturer actually called it out as well, and they used code references. So um, that's what uh, I would say that's perfectly fine for those applications. All right, next question, number four. What are your thoughts on the NEC handbook? I know the comments in blue are not code, but should we take them to heart? Um, you know, I, 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 do, I have given my opinion on this, uh, before, uh, and I, and I remind people all the time in, uh, is an NFPA, uh, does not write code. They do not, anybody that works for NFPA, and for those that don't know, that's the National Fire Protection Association. Uh, they do not submit public inputs and public comments. Okay. Uh, that's they're prohibited from doing that in the process. Now, of course, like anything, they could proxy their opinion through somebody else and they submit it. I mean, who's to stop anybody, right? We can help everybody. But as far as them doing it, they don't write the code. All they are is the keepers of it. And, and they do it every three years. They compile the information together and it's shared with everybody, right? So that's, that's what NFPA does. Now, the handbook, is published by NFPA, but it's usually written by somebody that works at NFPA. Uh, Jeff Sargent, Mark, uh, Mark Early used to work there. Uh, different ones who will, will, will give their own commentary. And that's what you're seeing here. It's somebody's opinion. Now, in all fairness, enough eyes are looked at it. Um, enough people with NFPA, trust me, uh, that have actually put their put their eyes on it to say that by the time it comes to publish, that it's pretty reliable information. Uh, but as long as you remember that you can't use that information 
for any type of uh, confirmation for an inspector, or an inspector should never use that blue commentary. That is just for information. It's just to teach you. So look, the, the handbook is the code book in a sense that it's got all the code language in it. It just gives you some commentary. So it's more of a educational document. Uh, but here's my thing. I still think it's a good thing uh, because when you read other people's opinions, uh, they're, you know, I wouldn't go with everything the NFPA says in there as gospel. Now, there are certain things that I disagree with them, as I'm sure they would with me. But it is still good commentary. It still helps you form your opinion. And, and I tell people all the time, I listen to multiple inputs uh, through the years when I'm forming my positions or my opinions or my interpretations. And I listen to what people have to say. I, I read what other people have, have, have commented on. I, you know, I purchase my fair share of other authors' documents every year. Um, and I pay for them out of my money uh, because I like to stay well abreast on everybody's opinion so that I can formulate my own opinion. So I'm saying that the handbook is good. It, it uh, gives you a, a starting point, especially for those that struggle with interpretation. Um, it allows you to read it and maybe explain something in a little better terms. And at the end of the day, if that helps you apply the code correctly, uh, then I'm all for it. So I, have, I, I think it's a, it's a worthwhile investment. Now, take it to heart is a totally different thing. Um, like I said, I don't believe... I, I found enough errors and enough educators' material to say that I'm not taking any one person at gospel. I always encourage you to do your due diligence on anything. Uh, seek opinions. Uh, vet it out. You might find that it matches exactly what the handbook says. And if that's the case, then it's pretty solid advice. But just remember, um, it is commentary. It is an individual's opinion, whoever authored it. It is not the opinion of NFPA. Okay, it's opinion of the individual who authored it on behalf of NFPA. So kind of kind of remember that, but just know that they vet it out pretty good. Okay, so the commentary is usually pretty solid. So um, I always tell people, read the commentary and then field some other experts and see what their opinions are. And it all should coagulate together and you should get a good understanding of what the code is. So um yeah, I don't know. I'd say I'd take it to heart, but I'd say it's, it's, it's pretty reliable information. How's that? Is this the best I can get for you? Okay. All right, the last one uh, we have is number five. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer this one, but I'm going to have to kind of tiptoe around it a little bit. It says, I know you have mentioned you work for Encore Wire. I don't usually get Encore Wire in my area. So I'm not talking about it. Okay, so the question is not about Encore's product. Okay, it says, while working in the cold this winter, I know the cold exasperates the situation. It seems that the outer sheathing of the NM cable is stiffer and more plasticky versus rubbery uh, than several years ago, making it very hard to strip. Any thoughts on that? Um, then he goes on to say, do the manufacturers have one, a working temperature for installing of NM cable? And two, do they have any recommendations for stripping it? My preference, my preferred method is a razor knife down the middle and separate it. Thank you. Okay. A couple questions in there and I will answer them. 
Uh, first of all, uh, let's talk about the, the perceived thickness uh, and change in sheathing. Uh, there has been a change with many manufacturers uh, when it comes to the sheathing. Uh, it has gotten a little bit uh, different in how it's maybe the, the, the PVC material from a softer to a harder. Uh, this has everything to do with crush and impact testing. So, uh, you know, manufacturers' products have to be rigorously crushed and impacted in order to maintain its, that it's in a, uh, in a safe order to be used by the general public. So over the years, uh, different, you know, different manufacturers have struggled with uh, crush and impact. And as a result, the sheathings have gotten uh, not necessarily thicker because it's 30 mils, uh, but the material itself as you know, gone from really softer to a little more rigid. Now, I'm not saying for every manufacturer, but that's probably what you're encountering is a, a, an attempt to combat uh, weaknesses and crush and impact testing. You know, and all manufacturers have to adhere to it. So it's basically they, we crush it in the long dimension and we have to crush it in the short dimension. Uh, especially for those elliptical type cables. And so ultimately uh, they have to pass testing. And so over the years, the sheathing has changed for many manufacturers and, and I don't look for that to stop. Um, so again, I, I would kind of say you have to get used to it. But again, as you said, when you're doing it during the winter, you got to remember that most of these have PVC sheathing. PVC has plasticizer. All of those things can be affected by cold weather. And it's going to make a softer plastic more, uh, more rigid as a result of it. Um, you should always acclimate your cable uh, in above freezing uh, prior to installation. Okay? Um, it should not be something that you leave out in the truck. It shouldn't be something you leave on the job site. It needs to be above freezing when you install it. Now, as the temperatures start to drop as you go uh, down... Um, then that's one thing. But during the installation process, uh, that's different, okay? Um, you want to make sure that you're installing it. And the lowest temperature that you can ever install it in is minus 10 degrees Celsius, okay? But that, you know, that minus 10 degrees Celsius or 14 degrees Fahrenheit uh, for those that are counting, um, that is under a condition, again, where it is kept above freezing for 24 hours before installation. Uh, it's not one of those things where you can store it in minus 10 degrees Celsius and then go to install it. Otherwise, you're going to get uh, the, insulation on the, the, the insulation on the conductors could easily crack when they're bent, uh, creating a problem. But then, of course, the sheathing will also crack as well. So... Um, it's just things that you need to think about. Now, manufacturers like Encore Wire, since you mentioned Encore Wire, if you go to their website, and for the Encore Wire, for example, if you go to the website and you go up to where it says products and you hover over it, then you go down and you'll see where it says tools and resources. If you click on tools and resources, uh, you're going to get things like guide specifications, product sheets for all the different products, uh, marketing material, but you're also going to get things like installation guides, uh, ICEA color guides, wire glossary, material safety. You get a bunch of those helpful things. Um, and we have an installation guide, and every manufacturer does. 
and it will give you the parameters for use of the various products. And again, just remember that when you get stuff like that, um, you'll see PVC. That's the, that's the sheathing that would be on our SE cable. That would be the sheathing that is on our non-metallic sheath cable generally. That would be the sheathing that's um, uh, on um, UF cable. That's PVC, polyvinyl chloride. Now, you do have some occasions where you have sheathing that is made out of XLPE, which is cross-linked polyethylene. And it's not the normal for any cable assembly to have that, but it is available in things like tray cables and whatnot. And then that allows you to go down to minus 40 degrees C. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about PVC. And that is minus 10 degrees Celsius is the max. And in order to be able to do that, you're going to have to keep it above freezing for at least 24 hours prior to installation, or you could have issues. I'm not saying you will, but from a manufacturer standpoint, you could have issues. Uh, let's see, what else is the question? Oh, do we have a working temperature? Yes, we told you. Uh, just, uh, you know, as long as you acclimate it, 24 hours, keep it, uh, you know, as long as you, I shouldn't say acclimate, as long as you keep it above freezing uh, for 24 hours, and then you go to install it, you could actually install it down, you know, in a condition that's minus 10 degrees C, and it's going to be fine. Um, let's see, what else is, the, what else question do you have? It's recommended for stripping it. You know, I don't like when people just take a knife and stick it in perpendicular to the cable and draw it down the middle. Um, it's obviously not going to work for things like 14.3 and 12.3 and things like that, unless it's the elliptical type. Uh, and, and so and we make, you know, plexed versus the, the elliptical. Um, that's not the best choice to do it. Uh, I'm still old school. I still use a knife positioned properly in the hand with the slight caddy on it. And you can plunge the tip of the knife in there and then kind of lift up on it and pull it while you're supporting it with your thumb underneath it. And it strips pretty easy. Even the newer stuff, I've messed with some of her stuff that's a little thicker. It still strips fine. Um, but you also know they, they make uh, the devices out there that can help reduce the error in those little things that you simply slide over the cable and then you squeeze it and you pull it down as well. Um, there's really no magical way. Just make sure you don't nick the insulated conductors inside because that's a problem. Uh, because if you nick a conductor and you take off any amount of insulation in the copper showing or the aluminum is showing, if you're doing larger size conductors or things like that where we get into aluminum, uh, you're not authorized to put insulation back on a conductor. Now, I know electricians out there just to say, screw it, I'll wrap it in electrical tape or rubber tape, whatever. You do you, you own it, you bought it, it's your wire. It's not our wire anymore, it's your wire. But when you call a manufacturer, you need to know that the manufacturer is really not going to give you much guidance on that because when it left our factory, it was in perfect shape. You're the one that damaged it. So you have to take the responsibility if you feel comfortable enough just wrapping an electrical tape because theoretically, we're the only ones, the manufacturer is the only one that can put insulation on that conductor. And... You want to use electrical tape or whatever you want. And I'm not saying you can't, right? I've got to walk that fine line. Uh, but you do it at your own risk. That's on you. Don't try to get a manufacturer's one-year warranty on a product that you damaged. That just wouldn't be right. Why would you do that anyway? So just be careful how you install it, and then you won't have to even worry about any of that, right? Okay. All right. Well, hopefully I covered 
all of those. Uh, that was uh, five issues in today's episode. Uh, as always, folks, if you have any question that you want to submit, you want my opinion, you want to ask me something, hey, just go over to paulabernathy.com. That portal's been around now for a couple of years. Uh, I get tons and tons and tons of requests, and a lot of them I just do by email. Uh, but, you know, the select few get selected for a podcast, much like today's. It was a great one that was submitted. Uh, I was able to kind of knock out five things in one podcast. So um, until next time, folks, stay safe. God bless. And uh, again, be sure to get our mobile app over at our websites or go to www.neccha.com. Everybody ask what's the NEC for. It's the National Electrical Collective. That's the repository that I keep all of my content for posterity. So that's what we call it, the NEC, National Electrical Collective. All right, folks, till next time, stay safe. God bless. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.